So over the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Trust Issues, and we have looked at different ways that we have a tendency to struggle with trust. We talked the first week that can we really trust that we matter to God? That, that he really cares about each and every one of us that much that he's numbered the hairs on our head and he's thought about us more than there are grains of sand. And last week we talked about can we trust that God guides, that when we have decisions to make that are life-altering decisions, do we really trust that his spirit will lead us in the right path? Even if we don't understand it in the moment, are we able to trust that he will guide us in right paths? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, I just want to remind us about uh, where trust begins because we've talked about what it means to trust, that trust is the reliance on the integrity, surety, and ability of a person. So when we talk about trust, it is a reliance on God and his integrity and surety and ability. You know, that's what trust is. Like we're placing something on him. We're, we're banking on him. And uh, when, when we struggle with trust, we're, we're, we're struggling to trust that he is a God of integrity, that he is sure, that he does have the ability. And throughout the Bible, trust is a call, a challenge, and a command. Because throughout history, since God has revealed himself to humanity, the temptation has been to trust something else other than him. And, and that's where the call, the challenge, and the command come in. And there's three ways by which we look at and evaluate the world. And this is important to understanding the foundation of this series. First of all is the mental, like what we think about the world, our worldview, you know, the, the way we think about religion, the way we think about politics, the way we think about society. Everything is formed by that worldview. And how that worldview gets shaped is, is going to have different influences for all of us. But hopefully... Once we become a follower of Christ, that worldview begins to be shaped uh, by God himself. That as he reveals himself in his word, that, that we're taking on perspectives that reflect um, God and his truth. But then there's the heart. There's the way we feel about what's going on in the world. That's where fear can start to creep in, uncertainty. You know, do we feel our decisions? Do we think about our decisions? Is it somewhere in the middle? But then, once we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, now we have the spiritual to consider as we look at the world and what goes on in the world around us. The Bible is very clear that without a relationship with Christ, we are dead spiritually. So anything apart from Christ that tries to mimic certain aspects of spirituality that are not founded in a relationship with Jesus is false spirituality. Uh, it, is, it is a deception to say the least. We can try to be spiritual people, but apart from Jesus, uh, it is a deception. It is not authentic uh, and true spirituality. So once we have this relationship with God through Jesus, then the spiritual then, is what is the underpinning of everything else. Our worldview, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we see, the way we respond, the way we react, the way we decide. Paul even says to the Colossian church, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom 
and understanding. Very different than worldly wisdom. Very different than worldly understanding. There's a lot of people that try to, try to lean on their worldly understanding or their worldly knowledge. Paul is praying for spiritual wisdom. That is very, very different than just worldly knowledge or understanding. So, for the believer, trust is something that's forged in the spiritual before it takes root in the mental or the emotional. In other words, trust isn't about willpower. Trust isn't about talking yourself into trusting God more than whatever it is you're tempted to trust. If we are, if we are going to trust in God in these areas that really matter in our life, it's forged in the spiritual. Unless we spend time in prayer, we spend time in the Word of God, we allow the truth of God's Word to infiltrate our mind and our heart, trust is only going to be a mental or emotional effort exercise and that will easily be shaken. That will easily be tested. Now it's not saying that trust isn't tested spiritually, but the resolve to see things through, to trust God in all things, uh, is formed in the spiritual and then it takes root in the mental and emotional. But oftentimes as humans, we get it completely backward. We try to talk ourselves into it. We try to think our way through it. We try to gain knowledge to it. We try to change the way we feel about something. Those are the things that we, uh, um, that, that we try to start with in order to gain a level of trust versus trust being forged in the spiritual. And so today, I want us to uh, think about what it means to trust that God saves. Trust that God saves. And here's why I think that's important uh, for us to spend some time on, because here's something I know about you and I and human behavior. Don't we try to fix people sometimes? Don't, 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 don't we, don't like, well, like we look at people and we go, well, I know what your problem is. <laughs> yeah, my problem is I'm listening to you, you know? <laughs> You know, and, and, and so if we see something what we would consider wrong or not right or not healthy or not good, we, we, we kind of take on this attitude that we're going to try to fix people. We're going to try to fix your behavior. We're going to try to fix your morals. We're going to try to fix your perspective. I mean, whatever it is, we just kind of take this thing on where we try to fix people. Or if we don't try to fix them, we try to change them. And how many times have uh, a husband or a wife, before they walk down the aisle, said, well, once, they're, once we're married, I'll be able to change them. How does that work for you? Yeah, it doesn't work very well. And oftentimes, when we try to change people, it's not based on something that's ethical or moral. It's just something we prefer. Like, I want you to be like me. I want to change you to be like me. And it, it, it minimizes each other's distinctives and personality and talent, skill set, all those kind of things. So when we try to change people, sometimes it's just for our own convenience. It's just for something that we think will make life easier. Well, if you only thought the way I thought, if you only do it the way I do it, then won't everything be easier? And then if you got one trying to change the other and the other one trying to change the other one, boy, isn't that going to be fun, <laughs> right? 
you know? So, and, and, I, and, I, and I'll give you an example. My wife is in here. She's going to shoot me later. <laughs> I, I love to cook. You can tell I love to cook, right? It doesn't matter what I do. I destroy the kitchen. It doesn't matter. I do. I just destroy the kitchen, don't I? You know? And, and she, she will look at me and go, how? Right? You know? And so, like, one of the things that she would hope that I could do is cook without destroying the kitchen. I'm not there yet, but I'm trying. You know, that's all we can ask, right? You know, and, and, and we take those things sometimes, but we go to the nth degree, and, and we just try to find ways to change people. But then we try to save people. We try to save people. Like somebody's life is going down a path that is not good. I mean, it could be addiction, it could be destructive behavior, it could be selfish behavior, it could just be, I'm only thinking about myself, I'm only doing for myself, and, and we try to take on the posture that I've got to get you out of this, I've got to pull you out of this, I've got to bring you out of this, and, and sometimes what begins to happen is when we try to save people, you know, we either end up enabling because we're not necessarily doing things in, in, in ways that are the best for that person, or we exhaust ourselves because we don't have proper boundaries. Like, you know, it's not saying don't help people, but, but there, there needs to be a line where we, we don't exhaust ourselves or overextend ourselves or overcommit ourselves. You know, when we have other uh, needs and responsibilities uh, around us, sometimes when we try to save people, we try to do things for them that they ultimately need to be doing for themselves. And since we're in the South and we're in a church, we oftentimes try to save people by guilting them into going to church, right? Well, you know, if you really cared, you would go to church with me. That never works. You know, we, we, we try to say, well, you know, if you just go to church, you'd get your life straightened out. Well, being in church means getting your life straightened out like you standing in a garage makes you a car. It, it doesn't work that way. Just, just because I stand in a garage doesn't make me a mechanic. Trust me, you don't want me touching your vehicle. And just being in a church doesn't necessarily mean that your destructive behavior, selfish behaviors are necessarily going to change. But one of the things that we do is we take on this mentality that we try to fix or we try to change or we go so far as to try to save. All of those mentalities, all of those postures, all of those attempts will fall woefully short. And I want us to unpack why that is the case. We're going to be in John chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 43. John chapter 1, verse 43. Because we really need to ask ourselves the question, do I live in a trust that it's actually God that does the work of salvation? Like in spite of my best efforts, it's actually God that does the work of salvation. So let's go to John chapter 1 verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida 
Andrew and Peter's hometown. So we've been introduced to Andrew and Peter already in the way John is talking about Jesus calling the disciples. Now, here is Bethsaida. Here is Nazareth, which is where Jesus is from. This whole region is called Galilee. All the way down here is Jerusalem. So you can see how far away from Jerusalem Jesus is in this account of calling the first disciples. And it's, it's always been amazing to me how many of those first disciples came from this region. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever know why that was the case or, or, or why so many of them were centered in that area, but it's really remarkable to think how many of those disciples came from this same region where Jesus grew up. And, and so you see the Sea of Galilee here. There's several cities there. And like I said, there's Jerusalem down there. So Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So Philip, just something about this quick interaction with Jesus, the way John records it, Philip knew that this was the one that had been prophesied because for hundreds of years before Jesus, thousands of years before Jesus was born, there were prophecies about the coming Messiah. There were prophecies that God would send a chosen one to redeem his people. And Philip just said, this is the guy. This is the one. And so he shares that with Nathaniel and even goes so far as to say his name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Pay attention to Nathaniel's response. Nazareth? Eh. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, you can just kind of hear that, can't you? You can see his face kind of scrunching up like Nazareth. I mean, like, come on. I mean, like Oakboro? No offense to Oakboro. Stanfield? <laughs> I'm in trouble now. I'm going to get emails on that one. But it's an example of how we will look at certain places and draw conclusions about people based on uh, location, town, last name, family of origin. And, and Nathaniel did that. And the reason he turned his nose up at Nazareth was Nazareth was a Roman military outpost. And military towns were known to be rough sinful places of great debauchery. I mean, so Nathaniel just looks at Nazareth and goes, hey, it can't be anything good come out of Nazareth. I'll, I'll never forget, um, I, was, I was on this evangelism team. I shared this uh, a little bit uh, before, but uh, we had gone into a town uh, to, to, to work with this church, and the pastor and his wife took us out um, to eat lunch the day we arrived. And we're just kind of sitting around there talking, getting to know each other. And he asked where we all went to school. Two of them that were on the team were at Gardner-Webb, so of course that was acceptable in, in certain people's eyes, you know, Gardner-Webb. And then the other one was, U, I think, UNC Greensboro, and, and looked at me and said, where do you go to school? And I said, Appalachian State. Woohoo! And the, the pastor's wife scrunched her face up and said, well, there's a bunch of weird people up there. <laughs> I 
I can accept that. <laughs> you know, but, 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 but the point being, like, she, she, drew a, she drew a conclusion based on location. Not about the person, not about the quality of the person, uh, not about the faith of the person, just by location. We all have a tendency to do that. As they approach, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. I wonder if Jesus said this, but John left it out, or if Jesus had, I mean, he probably had this much control over his tongue. And I heard what you said about me. <laughs> right? Like he could have said, not only did I see you under that fig tree, I heard what you said about my hometown. You know, he, he, he made it, you know, he, he took the higher road. Thank, thank the Lord for that, right? You know, give us an example of that. He said, before, uh, I could see you sitting under the fig tree before Philip found you. And Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Not you might be the son of God. You could be the son of God. You are the son of God the king of Israel. Now what I want us to see over the next few minutes are four very important things to remember about the work of salvation as we see this in John chapter 1. First of all, people do not find salvation unless they hear the gospel. People do not find salvation unless they hear the gospel. Now, uh, Paul does talk about in Romans that creation uh, by, of itself draws people to the thought that there is a creator, that there is one God. And, and, and one of the things that we do have to remember is that while the work of God is, is working in all pockets, one of the things that he's done for the New Testament church is to say that we are to go into the world making disciples, and disciples begin with hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that we take from that is that how people hear, that's a part of the work of the church. And sometimes that work of the church is in a what we call a corporate setting, which is what we're in right now. It's where we come together and we worship and we lift up God in song, but then we open the Word of God and we teach the truth of God and we present the message of Jesus that He came to seek and to save those that are lost. So for people to hear the church has to be working in the spiritual work of sharing the gospel. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come, follow me. I mean, that's the invitation of Jesus is to come and follow him. And we may not know what all that means. You know, we may not know where Jesus may lead us, but the invitation is to follow him. But then number two... People do not find salvation unless the gospel is shared, unless it is shared. So in order for people to hear, the gospel must be shared. So it is the work of the church to, to talk about the work of, or the message of the gospel. And, and, and let me say this before I, I hit this, because um, I didn't want to leave this out. There's a lot of things the church does that are good things. You know, when we feed the poor, 
uh, when we go into our communities and serve those that are, that are struggling and have need, when we send people to other countries, you know, to, to do work for the least of these in so many various ways, all of those things are good. But the most important thing the church does is talk about the gospel of Jesus. The need for people to give their life to Jesus Christ. The need for people to realize and recognize that they are sinners separated from God and that there is salvation through Jesus Christ. And, and without that being at the primary heart of what the church does, the church loses its mission. Because the gospel must be forefront in everything the church does. So it's the work of the church that is made up of people. God has done something really remarkable in the way that his primary vehicle by which the gospel is shared is people. It's people. It's people. And so the gospel is shared person to person. Person to person. Now, you know, people can hear, um, you know, Pastor Thomas, Pastor Adam, or me, you know, delivering a message and talking about uh, salvation through Jesus. But then there's people that can hear about Jesus through you. That you can be a person that shares what God has done in your life. Listen to what Philip did. Philip went to look for Nathaniel and told him, we've found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. We found the one. One of the most um, important things that you can do as a follower of Jesus is to think about your faith journey or a faith story or a testimony. There's a lot of different well, ways that we can talk about it, but what a testimony is is your life before Jesus reaching a point that you recognized you needed Jesus and then your invitation of Jesus to come into your life and what Jesus did as a result of him coming into your life. That's your testimony. Now, testimonies can take a lot of different shapes and go in a lot of different directions because God is going to show, uh, show you how sufficient he is in various seasons of life, even after you've given your life to Jesus. You could go through times of loss and find hope. You can go through times of challenge and find strength. You can go through times of confusion and find direction. All of those are opportunities to give a voice to what God has done in your life. And so so you being able to think about what was my life like before Jesus, and some of you can remember it very well. What brought you to the place of salvation? What brought you to the place of opening your life to Jesus, and what difference has Jesus made in your life? That is your personal testimony, your faith journey. Because we can have conversations with people that can have a problem with the church, that the church is just full of hypocrites, and I don't trust the church, and I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a part of a church, and don't even talk to me about church, and I get it. There's a lot of reasons we've given our, ourselves a black eye in organized religion. People can argue the validity of the Bible, that they can say the Bible was made up, and they made Jesus into a figure he never intended to be, and if you don't, if you've never studied that. You can feel intimidated by that. But the one thing nobody can take from you is that your story about how you came to Jesus and what Jesus has done in your life, that cannot be taken from you. Because that is what God has done. And you giving a voice to that can plant seeds that can lead uh, to somebody considering giving Jesus a second look. 
giving Jesus a second opportunity. Like, is he really who he said he was? Number three, people do not find salvation unless they choose Christ. And, and that's one of the things that is so important to understand about the work of salvation because when we choose Christ, that means we have to turn our back on the other gods that we're tempted to follow in our lives. And we've all got them. I mean, sometimes that God could be, uh, you know, it could be popularity. Sometimes that God could be money. Sometimes that God could be power. Sometimes that God could be um, self, like I'm going to do things the way I want to do them and stay out of my way. I mean, we're all tempted to have gods that we're going to put in front of Jesus Christ. And so part of the, the gospel, part of salvation is to say, Jesus, I'm trusting you over all of these other gods that I'm tempted to give trust to, that I'm tempted to follow in my life. Listen to what Nathaniel said. He exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. And that's where we all need to get to in a place where we say, Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the Messiah. You did come to earth. You did die on the cross. You did rise again. And because you rose again, I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. And I'm turning my back on all of these other gods. But then number four, people do not find salvation unless the Spirit moves in their heart. And this is the crux of understanding the work of salvation. Because here's what happens. We have a tendency as human beings to say, I'm going to trust in my ability, trust in my intelligence, trust in my talent, trust in my opportunities, trust in my methodology, trust in how things are the message is delivered, and that's what I'm going to depend on. And without the work of the Spirit, salvation doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. We can't convince somebody to be a follower of Jesus without the Spirit moving in their heart in such a way for them to open their heart to Him. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You remember like this feeling inside of you that something spiritual was happening in your heart. And when you surrendered, you yielded and allowed Christ to come in, that's when your spirit came to life. You remember that very distinctively. The night that I gave my life to Jesus, Jesus when I was 14. I remember the Spirit knocking so hard at my heart that I was praying for Christ to come in before the preacher ever led the room through that prayer. I could remember it being that palpable because the work of salvation doesn't happen without the Spirit. And when we forget that it, that it that, well, let's say it this way. Salvation is a spiritual event. It's not just a decision that we do mentally or emotionally. It's spiritual. And it's marked by a spiritual burden. And the reason that we get more serious about sharing our faith with our friends, family, and neighbors is because the Spirit has placed a burden in us that we know people that are far away from God. 
We know people that are living uh, selfish lives. We know people that are living destructive lives. And we can't fix them. We can't change them. We can't save them. But what God can do is put a burden inside of us that we will begin to pray uh, for that person and pray for opportunities to share Jesus. And the work of sharing the gospel is spiritual work. It's spiritual work. You know, uh, everything that goes in uh, to, to a service on Sunday, it's not just practicing music. It's not just putting an order of service together. It's not just uh, going to the Bible and seeing what God wants to say to you. At its core, it's spiritual work. And one of the reasons we get frustrated, we get discouraged, we don't think God is moving, we don't think God is active, we don't see God blessing our work, is we forget that at its, at its heart, it's spiritual work. We can be talented, we can be charismatic, we can be faithful, we can be solid, we can be strong, we can be theologically grounded. I mean, everything can be on the surface to be right and put together, but without the work of the Spirit, it, the work of salvation doesn't happen because we've got to be empowered by spiritual blessing. For God to take the work of salvation, the work of the gospel, and to bless it with his spirit so that the words that are spoken of the gospel penetrate the heart of those that are hearing it and the spirit move with inside that heart that makes that person wonder, do I need Jesus in my life? And that's not a mental decision or an emotional decision. It is spiritual. So as we close, let's think about three things. Can we live with a trust that God's voice speaks to others? And one of the things that can do is take the pressure off. Like if, if you're going to be in a position to talk about your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not up to you to convince the person. You don't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be polished. It doesn't have to have all the questions answered because, look, there's a mystery to our faith. And part of faith is that we trust in spite of the mystery, in spite of some of our questions. You're not going to answer every person's question, but what you can do is trust that when you have the opportunity to share Jesus, that he is speaking to those around you. Number two, trust that God's power is greater than your own. Trust that God's power is greater than your own. I am humbled and grateful every time somebody prays to receive Jesus in one of our services at mission because it reminds me time and time again that it's not about me. It's not about my impeccable communication skills. Even on the Sundays that I struggle with the English language. It's, it's not about me. It's not about my ability. It's not about, you know, wh wh whatever talent God has given me. It's about God's power blessing his word, blessing what he desires to say, and penetrating into the heart of those that don't know him. But we have to have a trust in that. That it's not like how many times that I try to say something or implore something or appeal to something or say something. It's trusting that God's power is greater than any of ours. And then number three, trust that God not only can, but wants others to come to salvation. 
Those people that you worry about who are living self-destructive lives, that are doing things that are, that are not godly, doing things that are going to bring harm to themselves or harm to others, as much as you want them to come to God, God wants it even more than you. He wants it even more than you. Because there is nothing that brings God greater joy than when those that are far from him surrender their life and trust in his son. Nothing brings him greater joy. And when we have the privilege and opportunity to be a part of that, it's humbling because we see that God is still working. God is still speaking. God is still drawing people to himself. We must resist the temptation to look at the struggles and the evil and the challenges of the world and think the church is being defeated. It is not defeated. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The reason the church feels defeated is because it has allowed itself to, to, to feel defeated. The reason it feels like it is losing ground is because it's allowed itself to lose ground. When churches gather together and bemoan what's happening in the world rather than gather in hopeful expectation that the Spirit of God will work and draw and save, then the church will act defeated. And unfortunately, there are many around us that act that way. And God help them, God restore them, God re-energize them, God empower them to do the work of ministry that he has uniquely positioned them and enabled them to do just like he has done here at Mission. One of the things that is so important to remember is the gospel is so succinctly summarized by Paul when in Romans 6.23 he says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the salvation we hope people can discover. That's the gospel that we share. It's not a gospel of behavior. It's not a gospel of ethics. It's not a gospel of morals. It's not, an, it's, it's, not a, it's not a gospel of religion. It's a gospel of salvation found by faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Can you trust that those that burden you, God wants to save even more than you do. Can you trust that it is the power of God that draws people to himself? Can you trust that it is the Spirit of God that will bring the ultimate conviction and the surrender of their heart to his Son? When we live in that trust, we will see the Spirit of God do remarkable things. In his name, for his glory, in the name of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's, there's three things that I want us to think about before I lead in a closing prayer. Number one, who do you have a burden for that is far from God? 
and, and maybe today what needed to be thought about is that it's not up to, to, to your convincing and it's not up to your guilting and it's not up to you trying to, to change the person's uh, mind or heart. It's the reminder that their life being turned around is ultimately the work of God. And that maybe instead of guilt or trying to change or trying to fix, you just simply pray for opportunities to talk about Christ and what Christ has done in your life, why Christ matters to you. And so if, as you think about that person, pray for God to speak to them. Pray that God would put people in their life that would give voice to the gospel of Jesus. And then the second thing is if you're in a group here at Mission, like a small group, Bible study that meets any of the times that, that, that we have groups going. Like, how can you as a group pray together for those people that you're burdened for? And if you don't want to share the name out loud, you can give an initial. You can give a first name. You don't have to give a whole lot of detail, but just put that in front of your group so that you're praying for those that are far from God. And the third one is this, if you're in this room today and you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, he loves you. He wants nothing more than to be an active presence in your life so that you can have uh, meaning, that you can have purpose, that you can live with a knowledge and belief that you matter and that God has placed you on this earth for a reason. You'll never find that apart from him. And if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus today, if you sense that he is knocking at the door of your heart, you feel something right now tugging, would you pray this prayer where you are? Pray this with me. Jesus, I need you. I feel you knocking at the door of my heart. And today I yield my will and my heart to you. I'm inviting you into my life. Jesus, I thank you that you came to earth. I thank you that you showed us who God really is, that you died on the cross, that you rose again, so that I can have that free gift of eternal life. Jesus, from this day forward, I will follow you wherever you lead me. Jesus, I'm yours. In Jesus' name I pray, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer today, there's two things that you can do. One is you can fill out that connection card I mentioned earlier, drop it in the box on the way out. I'll be in touch with you to celebrate the decision that you made to follow Jesus, but then to talk about baptism, which is the first act of obedience of a new believer. Or you can speak to me after the service. Uh, you can just, you know, pull me aside and let me know. But don't leave this room without sharing your decision to follow Jesus with someone. Father, thank you that your spirit moves, your spirit draws, your spirit saves. Lord, the privilege, the responsibility, and the opportunity that we have as your church remind us that it's spiritual work, that we can trust 
that you are working, you are moving, you are speaking. That we would resist the temptation to make it about our own efforts alone. That we would trust you to speak and to move and to draw. That we would live with a trust that you are the one that saves. Father, thank you that that work continues. Burden us for those that are far from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.